going to jump right into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 7, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't Pastor Mark do a great job last week on prayer? Wasn't that a good sermon, a helpful teaching on prayer? I pray that your prayer life is enriched uh, through hearing that and putting that in to practice. Today, we're looking at three short verses uh, in Matthew chapter 7, and that is 7, 12 through 14. And so Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, it says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. These are the words of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. Lord, though things are, are so unstable in your, our world, your word is a sure and solid foundation. Lord, we thank you that we can take your word and that we can build our lives upon it. And though the, the sands of culture may shift and change, your word never changes. And so, Lord, we endeavor to build our house, to build our lives on the unshakable foundation of your eternal word. Lord, press these truths into our heart today, Lord, that we would live by them and that we would shine for your glory as we do, that city on a hill that you've called us to be, not hiding our light, but shining in the world, being salt and light in this world that you have made. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 12 is a very simple idea. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not hard to understand that. You can explain that to a two-year-old. Very simple idea to grasp, but yet very difficult to do. So easy to understand, yet so very hard to put into practice. Now I want you to notice something because other cultures throughout history have had a similar teaching, a similar ethic. But most other cultures that have had this ethic, that, that teaching that virtue, that value, has been framed in the negative. It's been framed in the negative. Don't do unto others as you would want, wouldn't want other people to do to you. Simply don't do evil to others is how this ethic has been framed in the majority of human cultures. But Jesus does not frame his in the negative. He frames it here in the positive. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so Jesus here is not saying that we must avoid doing evil, which we must, but he's calling us as his people, his followers, who live in his kingdom, to go on the offensive. Amen. Not to just sit back and not do evil, but to actually do and to go about doing good. This isn't simply about not doing something harmful to others, but Jesus calls us to actively do and to seek the good and the well-being of others. One, the, the not doing of evil, really requires almost nothing of me. The other requires everything. 
requires sacrifice, requires service, requires thought, requires submission to the Lord and to his word. Now, this is called the golden rule. And Jesus lays it down here for us and and teaches us that whatever you, speaking of, of individuals, speaking of persons, whatever you would want someone to do unto you, however you want to be treated, that is how you should treat others. So he's talking here about our personal relationships. He's talking here about our personal interactions. Now we've seen already that Jesus has taught in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We spent several weeks walking through what that means and and what that looks like. Basically living under the rule and the reign of Christ. We've also looked at the great commandment that Jesus taught to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But what I would submit to you this morning is that this golden rule is not a third thing, but that all of these, seeking first the kingdom, loving your neighbor, and the golden rule, are the same thing. Just restated in a different way. Jesus, as a good teacher, knows how to communicate the same thing in different ways to help us to understand it. And so to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is the same way, is the same thing applied to my personal relationships as the golden rule. And so here the golden rule is teaching us how we should conduct ourselves in our relationships with others. Now what would your life look like if you lived this way? What would your life look like if you endeavored In every interaction, every time you were in traffic, in the drive-thru, at line in H-E-B, wherever it is you shop, if there's anywhere else to shop, I don't know. Costco, yes, thank you. Wherever you are, those lines are really long. Wherever you are, to think, I'm going to treat this person the way I would want to be treated. What would your life look like? What would your marriage look like if you lived that way? If you treated your spouse the way that you would like to be treated, what would your family look like? What would our church look like if we treated one another And spoke to one another and loved one another the way that we ourselves desire to be loved. You know, the Bible says that he who has friends must show himself friendly. If you want to have friends, don't be a jerk. If if you want to find community, reach out to other people. It's not right to come into the church and to sit down and to not interact with anyone, not talk to anyone, not make an effort for anybody else and to just sit there and say, nobody likes me, nobody loves me, nobody cares about me, this church is harsh, this 
church is cold, this church is antisocial, while you yourself sit there and exhibit all of those same attitudes. You're breaking the golden rule. We, we need to be reaching out. We need to be loving one another, getting involved, being friendly. What would our world look like if our world lived by this golden rule? I wrote these words here for this sermon well before the uh, issues broke out in the Middle East over the weekend. But if the world lived, if everyone lived by this golden rule, there would be no more strife, there would be no more animosity, there would be no more slavery, no more theft, no more murder, no more wars. If we all lived this way, we would have heaven on earth. And that should be no surprise because this is the value of the kingdom of heaven. This is the value. This is the kingdom ethic. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if, if, if the whole world would live under the, the reign of Christ that we would have heaven here on earth because Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. That shouldn't be a surprise and so what we need to see here, we need to hold up here, we need to see that this is a great and glorious way to live. Amen. This way of living brings heaven to earth. Of course, we know this, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So we cannot live this way without Christ living in us. There's no way for us to live this way without his spirit giving us the strength and the power to do it. And so this way of living will not sweep the earth without the gospel, what Christ has done, the saving power of God working in the world. Christ is the hope of the world. His death, his resurrection the price he paid for sin, there is no other hope for the world. What would our speech look like if we only spoke of someone the way that they want to be spoken of? Think about how often we violate that. How we speak of others in a way that they would not want themselves spoken of. That's a violation here of the golden rule. What about our thought life? Well, what if we only thought of others the way that they themselves desired to be thought of? Not thinking evil for people, not desiring for calamity to fall upon people, not praying for Joe Biden to fall off his bike again, you know. <laughs> what would our thought life look like? If it was governed by the golden rule. In what relationship are you breaking this rule? Is it with your children? Are you speaking them to a way, speaking them, speaking to them in a way 
that they want to be spoken to. And hear, hear this. You're not, you're, Jesus doesn't say to do unto others the way they want to be treated. He says do unto others the way you would want to be treated in that situation. So, so, so think of your children. It's not speaking them, to them in a way that they want to be spoken to. It's if you found yourself in that situation, how would you want to be spoken to? How, how do you want people to think of you? How do you want people to speak about you? Think about others that way. Speak about others that way. Where, where are you violating this golden rule? Is it with your spouse? Why is it that we often mistreat people the most that are the closest to us? I don't understand why that is. The people we love the most often see the worst of us. It should not be that way. In every relationship, in every interaction, we should be thinking, how would I want to be treated right now? This is the golden rule. Now, what if I have sinful desires? What if I have sinful desires? And I want other people to engage with me in sinful things. And the golden rule says that they have to do, treat me the way I want to be treated. So, for example, what if you want to commit adultery? Is it right then for someone to commit adultery with you, to treat you the way you want to be treated? Is this a blank slate? Is this some sort of loophole that Jesus put in the Bible that he wasn't aware of? No. Look at what Jesus says. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus hangs this rule on the law of God, on the scripture. And so th this rule does not bypass what is uh, declared sinful in God's word and in God's law. In fact, it upholds it. And so we do good unto others as defined by the law and the prophets. We do good unto others as defined by the word of God. It is not separated from God's law. It's not out there and out of space, untethered from anything. No, he says that this is essentially the, the, the message of the law and the prophets boiled down to this, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. We have to see that our actions have to be rooted in God's moral law. And living in this way, as I said earlier, is seeking first the kingdom of God in our personal relationships. And because Christ is king, we submit to his word. We submit to his law. About this passage, the theologian Rush Dooney had this to say, quote, The law is God's appointed means for dominion, for applying his government and righteousness to all of life. The golden rule is thus a declaration of the royal virtue 
the king's way of life. To separate that golden rule from the law of God is to falsify its meaning and to pervert or sentimentalize, to make it sentimental. Sentimental, I can't say this word right now. Sentimentalize it. There we go. There's another vowel in there. Sentimentalize it. Okay. We are summoned by our Lord to exercise the royal virtue as kings, priests, and prophets unto Christ on the earth. End quote. This is the way of heaven. And it's in accordance with the word of God. It's in accordance with the law and the prophets. And Jesus taught the exact same thing about the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, hangs all the law and the prophets. So this is not some sort of new thing. This is not some sort of separate thing. But this is Jesus summarizing for us all of the teaching of Scripture boiled down here into a simple concept. Now let's think about how to apply this golden rule. Let's start with the husbands here this morning. Got any husbands in the house? I'm coming for you, husbands. I'm coming for you. Ephesians 5 says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his self, his life down for her. So we are called to love our wives and to lay our lives down for our wives. But let me say this, husbands, we must ask ourselves this question. How does my wife desire to be treated? If I were my wife, how would I want to be treated right now? Jesus taught us that to look at a woman lustfully is committing heart adultery. Is that how I would want to be treated? To have my spouse committing heart adultery by looking at others lustfully? Husbands, would you want your wife staring at and looking at and checking out other men as they walk by? The answer, of course, is no, unless you're really some kind of perv, and then we'll pray for you, <laughs> big time. We'll have a deliverance down here at the altar for you at the end of service. No, that's not how we want to be treated. That's not how we want to be treated. We want to be respected. And when our spouse looks at somebody else with lustful intent committing heart adultery, that's not very respectful, is it, men? But how many Christian husbands violate this commandment on a daily basis? Looking at other women, checking them out, double looks, double takes, sexual fantasies, pornography... Men, you are violating this commandment. You are violating the law of God. You are living in sin. You are not following the golden rule. 
Husbands, we must sanctify our eyes. We must set them apart as holy unto the Lord. Pledging to our wives not only our bodies, but our very heart and our very soul. And when we look at other women with lustful intent, we are, in a sense, giving our heart and our soul to that other woman for a moment. So we must repent of our, of our fantasies. We must repent of our wandering eyes. We, we must bring every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Though, though in this body of flesh we have desires that are sinful, we also have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us who never once sinned, who never once looked with lustful intent. You say, how is that possible? He's God in the flesh. He did it on our behalf so that he could fill us with his power. And so now in Christ, I have been set free from the power of sin. And so have you. And so for freedom, Christ has set us free. We need to walk in the freedom that he has purchased for us. It doesn't mean we won't experience temptation. That's tonight's sermon. I'll leave it for tonight. But God wants us men to walk in victory. And he's provided the means for us to do it. And so to not use those means is sinful. And it produces death. And multi-generational death as the husband is the head of his wife and the family. So goes the husband oftentimes, so oftentimes, so goes the family. Wives. Don't think I forgot about you. How do you want to be treated? That's how you ought to treat your husband. You want to be loved. You want to be cherished. You want to be honored. You want to be the only one in his eyes. Love your husband. Respect your husband. Do you respect him? Do you honor him or do you belittle him, talk down to him and about him? Every time he does something that gets on your nerves, which, I mean, come on. Every time he doesn't get automatically what you were thinking of somehow without you verbalizing it, you know, and you get upset about it, you know, and you run to your friends and start talking about how dumb your husband is. You know, I don't, don't act like that doesn't happen. Or post some ridiculous passive aggressive thing on social media that doesn't name your husband. But I mean, who else in the world would you be talking about that way? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who you're talking about. Do you respect your husband? Do you honor him? Well, he's not very respectable. He's not very honorable. Let me find the verse that says, if he's not respectable, you don't have to respect him. Oh, wait, it's not in here. Just as when the wife's not being lovable, it doesn't mean the husband doesn't have to love her. Do you question his decisions publicly? 
Do you talk bad about him to your children? Do you withhold intimacy from him as some sort of bargaining chip? The Bible says not to do that. The Bible says that uh, the, the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs to the husband and that we should not deprive each other of sexual intimacy and that when we do that, we're, we're, we're making room for the devil in our relationship, for him to come in and to work us over. Children, coming after you next, children, do you obey your parents without talking back? Not obey your parents eventually, but immediately with joy and respect. Singles, I'm coming for you next. Singles, single young adults. How do you want your future spouse to be living right now? Right? You're supposed to treat others the way you want to be treated. If you're going to be married one day, the way you're living right now is treating your spouse a certain way. How do you want your future spouse to be treating you right now? Do you want them to be sleeping around? Do you want them to be viewing and watching pornography? Or do you want them to set themselves apart as unto the Lord, waiting for the day that they will be your spouse. And if that's the way you want to be treated, that's the way you ought to live. Now notice here, Jesus does not say that we should use some sort of force on others to get them to do what we want them to do. No, we as individuals are to treat one another the way we want to be treated in our personal interactions. This is personal relationships. This is not, by the way, how the government is supposed to treat people. The government has a different role. Theirs is the ministry of justice. And so often in our world, unbelievers tell Christians that the government should be practicing the golden rule. And if you go before a judge and he's sitting there thinking, well, I have to treat this person the way I want to be treated, he's totally lost his mind. Because he's not representing himself as an individual, he's representing the country, the government. And the government is supposed to be a ministry of justice, and it's supposed to be blind justice. Justice that, not, that, justice that is not blind is injustice. So if our justice is predicated on some sort of qualifier, well, they're poor, well, they're this race, well, they came from this place, well, X, Y, and Z, and all that factors into, well, that's why they stole that and that's why they murdered. That's not blind justice. Therefore, it's injustice. 
And so our justice system is an injustice system today because it's taking the golden rule, which is meant to govern individuals' lives, and it's applying it at a corporate level. We have a difficult time thinking in categories today. The way the government interacts towards people is very different than how individuals are called to act. Sometimes Christians think the government should act this way or that the government should just act as another individual. And that is not the case. If that were the case, we might as well have no government at all. The government's just another individual. No, the government has a different role in society than the individual, than the family, and then the church. And God's word speaks to those things. So, for example, there is no contradiction whatsoever in me saying as a Christian that I believe the government should secure the border. And at the same time, when the illegal comes in and is needing help and is needing assistance, that I myself serve them and love them and pray for them and care for them. There is no disconnection in that whatsoever. Because in my personal interactions, I'm to treat others the way they want to be treated. So whoever God brings into my life through his sovereignty, through his providence, however I personally interact with anybody at any time, I need to be treating them the way I would want to be treated if I was in their shoes. At the same time, the government should uphold justice and quit creating this system whereby which people are abused and neglected and, and impoverished and, and come here with nothing and nowhere to go. And, and no, it's, it's insanity what's happening right now. It's not helping anybody. There's no, there's no disconnection in those two things. Because I don't hate those people. I love those people. And what our government is doing is hurting people, not helping people. Our government can't even help its own people, much less take care of the whole world. And, it, and again, it's because our government is not obeying what the word of God says they ought to be doing. There were two other verses in this passage. I don't know if you remember them. Let's look at them here quickly in closing today. That's in closing, air quotes. 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way that leads, for the gate is narrow and the way that leads to life is hard. And those who find it are few. What is the narrow gate? It is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the gate. There is only one way of salvation for anyone, for any individual, for any family, for any community, for any church, for any nation. There's only one salvation, and that is Jesus. To try to find another way is impossible. Jesus is the way of salvation because only Jesus has dealt with our sin. It is our sin that separates us from God. It is our sin that produces death. Jesus died for our sin that we may have life. He is the only way to have our sins forgiven. He's the only way to have our sin dealt with. He's the only way for us to have life and life eternal. It is Jesus and only Jesus. He is that Nate gate. He is that narrow way. And following Jesus, the way of Jesus, it is not easy. 
It is not easy to treat others the way you want to be treated. That is not easy. But it is the way that leads to life. It is difficult, especially in our culture, as it continues to paganize and turn its back upon Christ. It becomes more and more difficult to live for Christ. Nevertheless, we are called to walk the narrow road. And here Jesus says that those who find the broad road, the easy road, the road that leads to destruction are many. And those here who find the way, the path that leads to life are few. And so I want to answer this question this morning because many people look at this and they say, that means that the majority of people will be lost and only a few will be saved. That hell will be more populated than heaven. But I want you to compare what Jesus says right here, if you'll permit me to look at one chapter over in Matthew chapter 8. Just the very next chapter. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, there's a, a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who has a servant that is sick. He comes to Jesus and says, please come and heal my servant, or please heal my servant. And Jesus says, I'll come and I'll heal your servant. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Simply say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels at his faith. He says, I haven't seen such faith as this in all of Israel. And here a Roman, a Gentile, has such faith. And in verse 11, Jesus says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that few find it, and the way to life that few find. But here in Matthew chapter 8, he says that many will come from east and west, from all over the place, and that they're going to sit down and recline in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's going on here? Why are there two seemingly different pictures well, the reason why is this. Because in these two conversations that Jesus is having, he's talking to two different groups of people. You see, in the later passage where Jesus says, people are going to be coming from all over the place. From north and south and east and west. And they're going to be sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Who is he talking to? He's talking to a Gentile. Who is he talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? Who is his audience there? Well, it says at the beginning, Matthew chapter 5, he was speaking to the crowds that came to him and to his disciples that sat down around him. The audience for the Sermon on the Mount is a primarily Jewish audience. The audience in Matthew chapter 8 is a Gentile. 
This is why it's a different picture. Because what do we know of the first century Jews? Did they receive their Messiah or not? No, they did not. They would not enter through the narrow gate. They would not follow Christ. Even after he died and rose again, as the church begins to send missionaries, as the Apostle Paul travels and plants churches, he is persecuted the most by his own people, which causes him great anguish and and soul ache. We read about that in Romans chapter 9 where he says, I wish that I could lay down my own life to redeem my own people who have made themselves enemies of their Messiah. So, so the difference here is this, that by and large, especially here in the first century, the Jewish people reject the narrow way, they reject Christ, and few of them enter into the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus speaks to Gentiles, he says, they're going to be flooding in. They're going to be coming from north, south, east, and west. They're going to be reclining in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And look at chapter 8, verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. So some have taken Jesus' words here from Matthew chapter 7, 13, and 14. They say, look, the way is narrow. The way is hard and few find it. Heaven will be less populated than hell. There'll be more people in hell than in heaven. And I say, hold on a second. Wait up. Just look at the next passage where Jesus says people are going to come flooding in. There's going to be people from all over the place. And many, he says, many will come from east and from west. And so I am hopeful that through the providential moving of God in the nations throughout history, I am hopeful that heaven will be way more full than hell in the end. That's what I'm hopeful for. Now, we don't see the reality of that right now. We don't see that playing out right now, especially in our nation. But our nation is not the only one on the planet. There's massive revivals happening all around the world today. People coming to Christ in China like never before. South America like never before. I've talked to missionaries that have seen revivals in North Korea and Iran and hundreds of people being baptized at once all over the world. From east and south and north and west, many being brought into the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 13, we won't go there today, but Jesus essentially repeats the exact same thing. Someone comes to him and asks him the question, point blank. He says, will only a few be saved? Jesus says essentially the same thing. The way is narrow, And the way to destruction is broad. But many are going to come from all over the nations and enter into the kingdom of God. So it is the broad road that is the way to ruin. And many a man has found his life in shambles at the end of the broad road. The easy path is not the path 
of life in this fallen world. Christians are often called narrow-minded. Well, if that's what people want to call us, I'm, I take that as a compliment. It just means I'm on the narrow road. It means I've entered through the narrow gate. We are narrow-minded in that sense. There's only one way that leads to life. There's only one way to salvation, and that is Jesus. Amen? But the gospel message is for everyone. So while it is exclusive in the sense that it is only Christ, it is incredibly inclusive in that it's for everybody. Jesus died for the sins of the world. We live, in the, we live in broad times, the broad way. So many people with broad morals. Anything goes if it, feel good, if it feels good, do it. But Jesus says that pathway leads to destruction. At the end of that road is a final judgment and a judge to which we all must give an account. But those who go the narrow road, those who put their faith and trust in Christ and follow him, Repenting of their sins, trusting in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. And when we stand before the Lord on that last day, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. So what road are you on today? Are you on the broad road? Come to Christ. What rule are you following today? I'm going to treat others the way I've been treated? Cheat me, I'll cheat you? No. We're following the golden rule to treat others the way we would want to be treated. So if you've broken the golden rule, and we all have, we come to Christ. We come to Christ. We lay our sin down at his feet, and he promises to wash us clean and to make us whole. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite us uh, to take a moment just to reflect on the word of God today. When we see in God's word such a broad and overarching ethic, virtue, as treat others the way we would like to be treated we see immediately just how sinful we really are. At times it can feel overwhelming. At times it can feel depressing. And this is why we need Jesus. This is why we needed the cross. We needed someone to pay the price for our sins, which are many. And that is what Christ has done for us. And so this morning, we're going to reflect on that work that Christ did for us. We're going to remember it. We're going to remember why he shed his blood. We're going to remember why he was nailed to that cross to pay the price for our sin. And we're going to remember that God received that act of sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And that our sins are forgiven if we are in Christ. And so as we come to the table today, we don't come under condemnation of the devil, but we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, looking unto Christ, looking unto His work, 
which is the only hope of salvation that we have. Father, we thank you for your word. It does speak to us. It does help us. It does lead us and it does guide us. It does convict us. Lord, we all fall short. We've all fallen short. We've fallen short this week. We've, most of us have fallen short today, even today, of your holy and righteous standard. But you invite us to come. You invite us to come to your table. You invite us to come to your cross and to receive forgiveness and wholeness and life eternal. As we come today, we come in faith, not faith in the elements, but faith in what they represent. Faith in your shed blood, faith in your finished work. Knowing, Lord, that we don't work for our salvation, but that it is a gift of grace that we receive by faith. We come this morning in faith in your final sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.